a note for our listeners. Hello, listeners. We recorded this week's Jay's Ranterific Ride this past Tuesday, before the NBA Players and League Office acted to postpone the NBA playoff games scheduled for this week after the shooting of Jacob Blake by local police officers in Milwaukee. The segment you are about to hear concerns a related but smaller issue within the NBA that happened before the events of this week. We decided we would still include this segment for you guys as it speaks to a number of important issues, but we also thought we should explain why we had a discussion about the NBA that did not include the postponements and the reaction by the league to Jacob Blake. We will be including a larger discussion about the NBA, Jacob Blake, and this intersection of politics and entertainment in our next episode. But for now, enjoy episode 14. Hello, listeners! Welcome to episode 14, some basics, some DNC, and finally, some brevity. It's like a little poem that you wrote there. It is, it is. And you know what, Jay? You know, I, I know something that I have a feeling the rest of the audience doesn't know. You know what that is? What's that? I know that it's a certain somebody, a podcast host's birthday today. Is that true? What? All right. You got me. You got me. It's my birthday. Happy birthday to my wonderful co-host on the pod here, Justin. He is 39 today. I said it out loud. Well, you know, we'd already talked about this. He's younger than me. To me, he's a young man. He looks good, too. I appreciate that. Thank you. Even in the pandemic. You look pretty good yourself for for 40. Uh, You know, I'm I'm just uh, flattered that of all the things you could have done today on your birthday, you wanted to be recording a podcast with me. That's true. The wife got, she set up a wonderful cheese board. We had a great right. dinner. Okay. And then I'm settling into a, a great podcast with my buddy and co-host Riz. What could be better? Exactly. We're, we're going to keep this one quick, though, in honor of your birthday. Yeah. Uh, it is also, it was also the, uh, first I should say that, you know, if this was 15 years ago, because Justin and I, and I have known each other for a really long time. If this was 15 years ago, we would be drunk right now. I would like to go uh, take a time capsule in honor of Bill and Ted coming out on Friday. I'd like to <laughs> take a telephone true. booth, yeah. go back in time and tell, uh, you know, the us's of 15 years ago, you're going to be recording a political podcast on your birthday at 39. <laughs> yeah, that would, that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. The, uh, so here's the thing. We named this episode uh, some basics, some DNC, and finally some brevity. We're going to talk about all of those things, but uh, the brevity part is because we have been getting feedback from you guys. <laughs> and the one thing that keeps happening is people saying, your episodes are just too damn long. And I keep telling them, you know, sorry, I'm not living for you. I'm going to do the, <laughs> the episode length that I want to do. And again, you don't have to listen to it all in one setting. I mean, how many times do we have to say this every week? Don't listen to it all in one sitting. Look, that's your truth. Right, Our that, truth is that we would like to make longer episodes and talk about the things we want to talk about every right, week. So, right, you know, exactly. calm down. But we are going to give you guys a break this week, and we're going to keep this as short as possible. I think this is going to be one of our shorter ones. We have some... some, some yeah, he says that you know, now. Right. We're, just going to, we're going direct into it. I, I say this now, but I really am going to stick with it. Also, right. this was the first week of uh, online school for my two little kids. Aww. So I am particularly exhausted because it's been just... Professor Riz. It's an epic fail. Uh, yeah, Professor Riz. Thing. Yeah, it it just doesn't work. Like, my my try keeping a six year old online, paying attention. You know, the, and I feel so bad for the teachers. They have like twenty kids in the class, and you know, every it, it ends up being this thing where like, okay, everyone take out this sheet of paper, and twenty kids simultaneously are like, we don't know where that is. <laughs> 
this. <laughs> and now the teacher has to go through every single person, every single Zoom block and say, well, where did you put it? Oh I don't gosh. know. My dad did something with it. Well, where's your dad? He's working. <laughs> <laughs> I have to take a moment and be a proud uncle because I thought the, what you posted on Facebook about Avery yeah. was absolutely hysterical. You've got to just run through that real quick. Yeah, yeah, I'll run through it quickly. So um, it, my son, Avery, he's uh, he's six and a half and he, he has a lot of questions. He's got a lot on his mind all the time. So uh, he's raising his hand. This is like the second day of school. And you can tell the teacher's a little frustrated already, as she <laughs> should be. These people should be getting paid millions of dollars a year, honestly. Yeah. So um, she, uh, so, so he's raising his hand and she calls on him and uh, she's like, Avery, what's the problem? And uh, he goes, I have two questions. You know, he always prefaces it. Like he always tells you exactly what he has. Right. And she's like, what are your questions, Avery? And he goes, I'm hungry. And she goes, that's not a question, Avery. He goes, well, you didn't let me get to the question. When do we eat? <laughs> <laughs> he said it in such a sort of snide way, which yeah. was just great. And then she's like, uh, we eat in like an hour. Okay. Uh, what is your second question? He's like, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> and gets up and just leaves. He has to go to the bathroom like every 15 minutes, as do all these kids. So I'll be like walking past the office we set up for him is like sort of off of our kitchen. And I'll go into the kitchen to get some water or something. And I'll see him just sitting on the couch. And I'm like, oh, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, she said that we could take a break. I'm like, well, why do I still hear her talking then? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it is just such an a show. Yeah. For, for lack of a better it sounds term like it. Yeah. and all the parents are just like this is not going to work how are we going to do this but you know they, they got to do what they got to do hopefully this pandemic ends soon and we can all get back to regular life here because uh, yeah. i miss it yeah. yeah yeah agreed all right so let's not waste any more time let's go right into honest abes honest abes go when he growed up this tiny babe folks all called him honest abe abraham abraham Quickly here, Jay, push some of our products, push some of our capitalist endeavors. All right. We got capitalism happening in full force. Uh, well, even before capitalism, we got, I mean, I don't know if this is a capitalistic enterprise that we welcome mm. everyone to ask a question. Everyone's equal here, mm. you know? Yeah. We got a discord. I don't know if you guys know that, but you can engage with us in discussion uh, on politics, the upcoming election, whatever you guys want to talk about, we'll address in the discord. Mm. We'll address it on the show. Check it out. The link is in all of our bios on all yep. our socials uh come see us come say hi and 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 let's let's talk about some things yeah exactly respectful discourse via discord wow i like it yeah you like that they should do that they they you should just, do you that. just came yeah. up with their marketing i campaign. just wrote an ad for them yeah they should hire yeah. me all right that's good yeah. <laughs> and then we got some products we got some shirts we got some mugs we got some baby onesies we got some masks all this great stuff it's all pushes moderate change done incrementally the way it should be done so wow your friends with your knowledge of politics and the way our government should work, not necessarily the way it does work, yeah. uh, with buying a mug and buying a shirt and, you know, buy our stuff. It's, buy it's, it's our fun. stuff. Yeah. Give us money. Although we won't make very much of it. Like, yeah, the, 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 I got to tell you, the, uh, the profit... The profit, it's not a lot. Uh, yeah, it's really it's, peanuts, it's not a way to make a living. No, it's not. But it's just fun. It's just fun. We just want it's name recognition. We want people out there drinking mugs, you know, with our logo uh, on it, and we think yeah. that's pretty cool. So it's a good time. So moving on, um, I want to say something a little bit sentimental, um, in honor of Jay's birthday and in honor oh. of all of you. Okay, I, I sort of 
thought this through earlier today. Absolutely. Yeah, don't it's not that sweet, honestly. But okay. <laughs> so you know, this whole podcast thing is a labor of love for Justin and me, of course. And uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how it reminds me of the sort of early days of playing music. Now, for those of you who who didn't know this, Jay and I played in bands together for many, many years. We both went on to have some success in the music industry on our own later on, uh, but it was never as fun as when it was simply a labor of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are lots of benefits to being a musician. You know, you get to jump around on stage, you hang out with interesting people, everyone thinks you're interesting. Uh, you know, but we always said that the best part, of all those things, the best part about it, and really the reason we did it was because you were making something you believed in with your best friends right yeah and that was always the best part of being in a band you know being in a cramped rehearsal space in boston with a space heater in the dead of winter creating you know something that seemed like the most important thing in the world to us at that moment right yeah so my mother has been listening a lot to our podcast and and she keeps she's asked me several times now like since we started the pod you know where did all this come from with you guys like i had no idea you guys had so all funny. this had all these marbles in your head basically <laughs> oh, gee, and, thanks right exactly and and i tell her you know that what i've told jay before that i think it's born out of the same place that the music thing was born out of you know which explains why almost all of our musician friends the ones that jay and i share are we're all sort of cut from the same cloth like whatever we are into at that moment we have a tendency to put a lot of passion into it we're just yeah. passionate people maybe that's just something that is unique to artist people i don't know what it is but it is it does all come from the same place but anyway i was thinking about how the whole process of creating this podcast podcast is even similar to when we played in a band together you know the the first part is the creative process where you know the second we're done recording an episode we're thinking about the next episode and Mm -hmm. we're bouncing ideas off each other all week the second part is the preparation for the show which you know we're thinking about what we're going to bring you guys the entire week we're writing outlines we're we're honing in on things shedding we're, exactly, we're shedding. We're, we're, we're in the rehearsal space, essentially. Yeah. Uh, the next part is the actual performance, which is what we're doing right now. And although we're not live in front of an audience, you still kind of get that performative sort of adrenaline rush mm-hmm. um, as you're doing it. So it does feel like performing. And then finally, the last part, the most important part to me, is the feedback. Yeah. You know, even if the feedback is terrible and you think it sucked, it's the same thing as when you would come off stage at a show, you know, back in the day. And the the, the point is, even if someone was like, eh, it wasn't really my bag, you know, the point is that good or bad, people were talking about it. And that made you feel a certain way that people were talking about it. So all of this to say that I can't stress enough how important that feedback part is to us. It really makes the whole thing worthwhile. So we really appreciate you guys who have reached out to us to tell us what you've liked, what you didn't like, uh, and even how some of you have even said that it, it's changed your thinking on something. And I believe we had one person even tell us it kind of changed their life a little bit, yeah, which it was, was like, pretty wow. pretty extraordinary to read, yeah. Pretty incredible, Amazing. yeah. Please keep it up. Let us know how you feel. And thank you so much for uh, contributing to the experience for us. That's really all Man, I have to say about that. That's excellent. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't second that more. Cheers to that. Uh, Absolutely. You know, we, want, we want to dialogue with you guys as much as we want to dialogue with each other, and it makes it really fun. So, you know, we hope to hear from you more. Exactly. So in the spirit of brevity, keeping this one short, let's move past Honest Abes. And I believe my buddy Jay on his birthday has a rant for you. Let's go into Jay's Rantorific Ride. All right. So I'll keep this short. 
but I couldn't let the week go by without mentioning this little thing that happened over inside the NBA bubble. Now, a little info off the top here. I'm a Los Angeles Clippers fan. I held season tickets for many years and was at every game through the Donald Sterling racism crisis. That was truly a standout time for this team that has gotten little to no respect in a town run by the Los Angeles Lakers. And it really did usher in this modern era in the NBA. At the time, the responses around the league were measured. However, I do believe they've gone way too far with the wokeness. But that being said, it seems that the wokeness runs down a one-way street. Now, as we know, I'm not a big fan of the uber-woke. I'm not a fan of cancel culture, but I am a fan of consistency, and I'm not a fan of hypocrisy. And when I see it, I feel the need to call it out. So on my birthday, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call it out a little bit here, Riz. Cool. This past weekend, during a playoff basketball game between the Los Angeles Clippers and the Dallas Mavericks, Luka Doncic, a white European man, and Montrez Harrell, a black man, got into a scuffle after tripping each other at the Clippers' defensive end. Doncic accused Harrell of flopping, which is to say, for those who aren't into the NBA, dramatically overemphasizing the contact to which Harrell responded by calling Doncic a, quote, bitch-ass white boy, end quote. Now, I don't think I need to state much more for our audience to recognize that if the roles were reversed here, there would be more rioting in the streets calling for the job and head of Doncic. However, what ended up happening was a relegation to the sports section of most, if not all, media outlets. Now, neither would be right, however. There is a severe lack of consistency here in the NBA and in society as well in response to this. Don't get me wrong. I think how this was handled was pretty great. There was an in-person apology by Harrell, an acceptance of that apology by Doncic, and they hugged it out before the next game. I'm all for this. Harrell said something he shouldn't have said in an emotional moment. He recognized it was wrong. He repented. He asked for forgiveness. He does not have a history of this behavior, and so we should forgive him and move on. This wouldn't be a problem, save for the fact that this is the furthest thing from consistent. Doc Rivers, the Clipper coach, said the following about the incident. I don't think he meant anything racially by it, he said. Uh, white boy. But I don't think there was anything racial intended. But we are in a very heightened climate, and you have to be careful. Trez, meaning Montrez Harrell, was the first one to say that. He said, Quote, I didn't mean that racially. Now, I've seen Doc Rivers respond to white-on-black racial events, and none of them have been near this sentiment. No benefit of the doubt, no calls for mediation, and the same can be said for the NBA and for the general public here. Now, I'm not going to gain any popularity for voicing this, I'm sure, but I feel the need to. Racism is bad, period. And if we all agree that racism is just as bad when it's white-on-black than when it's black-on-Jewish, or when it's black-on-white, then where is the outrage? Where are the cancel police? Where is the public debate, at least? I don't understand this behavior, it's hypocritical, and it weakens the message of all of the black people who are in the streets attempting to put a stop to racism, because this is it. You missed it. You missed the opportunity to say, yes, we want all racism to stop. Now, you just look like a political lobbyist group who only wants to handle this issue from one perspective, one side. Never mind that this is coming from two incredibly privileged men. Uh, That's what I got. Uh, Riz, any thoughts here? Am I wrong? Should I be more understanding that the systemic issues create an uneven playing field? Does it extend to the Jews, as an example? Was this racism? I think it's at least a good debate to have. Yeah, um, that one is... Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> I totally understand why that would be the subject of a rant. Mm. And I also am sort of at a loss for words because I don't really care about this that much. Um, yeah. But I do get it. However, you know, I was thinking as you were sort of saying it, we have a mutual friend, you and I, Yeah, that is a huge basketball fan and also happens to be a fantastic lawyer. And he also may or may not be involved in our media company creation that we told you guys about last week. Um, So rather than me answer this one, this is more in his wheelhouse. Why don't we just give him a call? Great. Let's do it. Let's ring him. Hey, Jay. Clay, what's going on? How are you? I'm okay, but you... You sound like you're doing a radio voice. 
We are in the middle of a podcast right now. Uh, You're on the air. Get excited. Yeah. There's Rob. I heard him. I heard <laughs> him. Too. Like, ah. yeah. we, we decided to torture you and uh, give you a call to ask for your opinion, actually. So you should be honored. Yeah, certainly not torture for me to have someone ask me what I think. Yeah. So, Jay, let's not waste any time. Go right into what we're what I'm we not mincing words here. All right. Yeah. Clay, we're t- <laughs> you are a big basketball fan. We know that. We're talking about the Clippers. We're talking about the Mavericks. Uh, Montrez, Harrell. And Doncic, they got into a bit of a spat. Uh, there was a little racial situation. Harold called Doncic a, uh, what was it? A, a bitch-ass white boy, I believe is what it was. Yeah. Uh, that's right. So, um, it's you been know, all over I, the news. It sounds a little hypocritical to me. Uh, the reaction seems a little, and, and I'm all for the reaction that happened, but the reaction seems a little under what it would be if the situation were, was reversed. I'm, I'm curious as to what your thoughts were on the matter. Well... I have many, I suppose. As an initial matter, I would just say that to me, partially, I want to feel like this is just much ado about nothing. The two people involved handled it like adults and Mm -hmm. said they're sorry Mm -hmm. afterwards and hugged. And so the media and other people, you know, want to want to keep talking about it. And that's fine. But I mean, first and foremost, I thought they handled it exactly how they should have. And and we ought to be able to handle things like that more often. Agreed. Um, That That was Justin's argument. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, how can you argue with that? I mean, it's just, you know, they, someone, someone owned up to a mistake. What a crazy thing. Right. But I'd say, I'd say the, the, the issue I have, and this is not to say I don't see the hypocrisy. I see the hypocrisy. I see, I see the double standard, but I guess I'd say a couple of things. One, it's a hot mic on a basketball court. It's, you know, people say things to each other that no one's supposed to hear. And so, sure. I mean, it probably wasn't the worst thing that was said in that quarter. And it's just that someone happened to pick it up. And so I, I, I'm not going to hand ring too much over something that was sort of an accidental disclosure. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, it was disclosed. It did happen. We know about it. The issue I have with equating it as just a complete apples to apples, as if he had said, get off my black guy or, you know, something, some, something, whatever it is. You know, the, the, the reason I don't think it's an apples to apples thing is just because in, in the American experience, it's the, the history of how we got here is just different. Whether you want to call it systemic racism, institutional racism, or checkered past, you know, whatever it is, there's more force and vitriol and prejudice behind a racial slur being slung from a white person to a black person than the reverse. Yep. I understand people want to say, well, that's a double standard. It's, you know, reverse racism, like whatever you want to say. And it is a double standard. And I think we ought to be able to be adults and accept that and move on. The problem, though, and this is really, this is the biggest thing for me with this whole thing. The problem, though, is that the left, with the wokeness and all of this stuff just running rampant, they've set an impossible standard for themselves mm-hmm. and for everyone to follow. And if you can't meet it, you have serious consequences. And so... Yeah. We've talked about that a lot. I don't, I don't fault Justin or anybody else for looking at that and calling BS, because these are the rules that the left insists we have to play by. Sure. Only then they don't want to play by them when it's one of their own. And they just, they, they, they have a, such a lack of self-awareness and incapability of calling anybody out as long as they're wearing their jersey. Right. And right. I, I think that, that that's the reality they created for themselves. So basically you're saying, you're saying an intelligent version of a more intelligent version of if everyone just calmed the F down, we wouldn't have these situations on either right. side. Yeah, we've said that. How many times we say it? Calm down. Yeah. yeah, as you know from knowing me, as long as you have, that's kind of my answer for everything. Yeah, right. I just kind of want to roll my eyes and move on. It's kind of the answer we give on this podcast to most things. It's like right. everybody yeah. calm, calm down. down. Yeah, right. everyone chill out. But you know, 
So th- that's the issue. I think that I think it's pretty disingenuous for um, for people on the left to to be outraged at the notion that someone on on the right would would have taken offense to this. Because yeah. again, I just think if these these are the rules of the game you laid down. Um, sure. But at the same time, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say it's the exact same thing. And in particular, also because you know, calling someone a white boy, it's calling attention to their race, but it's not necessarily denigrating the race. Agreed. So I don't. Right. Know. What was it racist? Is, mm. is, a, is a good question yeah, to ask. Yeah. It's a good. De- it's a good debate to have. I I, I think it's worthy of a conversation, yeah. and yeah. we appreciate you uh, taking time out of your evening yeah. to uh, talk to us. Yeah. We're glad we called you. I'm glad good. you picked up. I really liked hearing your kids screaming in the background too. That was awesome. Oh, can you hear that? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, Henry's. Henry's waving a lightsaber around, two lightsabers around. Well, that's always part of the drill. Well, thanks again, dude. Yeah. Uh, appreciate appreciate you picking up and uh, answering the question here for us so I didn't have to do it myself. <laughs> hey, no problem. I'm, right. I'm good for that. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. All right, y'all be good. Bye. Okay, well, uh, glad we, got, we gave Clay a call and got his opinion. I think yeah, uh, we are all great. on the same page pretty much about this. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like we are. Yeah, so um, let's move on to, uh, again, in the spirit of brevity, let's not waste any more time. Let's go on to K- We Care A Lot. We Care A Lot. All right. Welcome to We Care A Lot. Now, we got, uh, it's more of a statement here, I think, from our favorite liberal tier drinker. Who we're now going to call LTD. LTD. Sure. All right. I like it. Yeah. I like it. It's like, it's like LD instead of Larry David. Oh. LTD has been the one who's chimed in the most. I have a feeling he's a big Ben Shapiro fan. Um, I'll get to why I think that later in the pod. I also have a feeling that he might be related to me, but I honestly don't know because I've I've uh, I've approached this person. It happens to be on my wife's side, and he he denies it. So wow. I honestly don't know who liberal. T- just because he has a mug that says liberal tears. So I mean, I got that mug too. And That's I, true. A lot me. of people do. It, it, it wasn't and, you, and yeah, I'm related um, to you. There you go. There you go. So what did liberal tear drinker have to say, Jay? Uh, liberal tear drinker said, quote, Barack Obama was a bad president because he clearly does not agree that there are natural rights that preexist government. He believes rights come from government. And that is what has always made Obama a deeply divisive and dangerous leader. Go. <laughs> okay. I like that he put the go in there. Yeah, very important. Um, you know, I read this question and I thought to myself, this is such an important and broad sort of comments on a question, like you said, it's a comment, um, that we, we decided, uh, you know, I spoke to Jay about it and we decided that, uh, we should make this the entire topic of the day again, in the spirit of brevity. And because it is a very broad topic and we're going to do it by using some of the words that came from last week's democratic national convention. If you didn't get a chance to watch that, we'll be bringing that up a little bit. We're going to have some basics for you today on, you know, ideological basics, uh, some bigger ideological questions and some current events all in one. So it's like you get everything for the price of one, don't you, Jay? It's pretty good. I, it's a good deal. I would take it if it I is. could. But first, before we get to that, I actually, I have a story. Um, and it's and the story, you know what? I'm going to tell you the moral of the story before I even give you the story, which is the moral of the story is that many people can't name the fundamental and basic differences that exist in ideology between Republicans and Democrats. I think this is a pervasive problem in America. Uh, people just don't know. And I want to tell a story about 
sort of why I think that, you know, this is just a personal anecdote, but, but I think it's a, it's a fitting, it's fitting for this topic that we're talking about. So I, you know, I was hanging out with my wife's friend and family, somebody I've known for, for many years, and we were talking about politics. And she said that even though she voted for Trump in 2016, she wasn't going to vote for him again in 2020 because she had been disappointed with his, you know, inability to not be an basically. Um, so, you know, I said, so you're going to vote for Biden then? And she was like, oh, no, I, hell no. I hate Biden. I can't I can't stand him. Um, so we argued a little bit about that. And after a few minutes, she finally declared, you know what it is? Both parties suck. I hate them both. They're both mm -hmm. terrible. And to be completely honest, this is the way I tend to feel most of the time. And I think, Jay, you probably feel the same way. Couldn't agree both more. Both parties suck. A pox on both your houses, right? A plague on both your houses! But for this particular friends, even though she is a both parties suck person, yeah. when it comes time to vote, she always votes in one direction. And that's always towards the right. She mm -hmm. voted for McCain in 2008, for Romney in 2012, and for Trump in 2016, despite the fact that she proudly proclaims that both parties suck. Okay. So I decided that I needed to challenge her on what it is about somebody with a D next to their name that is so damn toxic to her that she seemingly never considers pulling the lever for any of them. You know, right. Bill Maher talks about this all the time on his show. For anyone who watches Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO, he will often have Republicans on the show and he'll say, what is it about that D that is so damn toxic that you, you won't even consider it? And I think it's not necessarily the same the other way around. I think there are a lot of Democrats who actually would honestly consider voting for the right Republican. Mm -hmm. But Republicans, for whatever reason, if you're a Democrat, that is as toxic as anything you could think of for a lot of them. I'm not talking about all of them. I'm talking about the majority, right? So what is it? Knowing that she, that this particular friend of mine wasn't nearly as politically informed as I tend to be, which by the way, isn't a bad thing. As I've said a million times, my wife is like the least politically informed person I've ever met and she's wonderful. But I ran through a list of conservative ideals to see how she felt about them. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know, are you a gun owner? You know, because the fact of the matter is that, you know, of all the single issue voters out there, the gun issue is probably the most dynamic. There are a ton of people in this country who don't care about any other issues. It's probably the greatest single issue vote in the country. Mm -hmm. the they, people that vote Republican because they love their guns and they're convinced that the Democrats are going to limit their right to bear arms. So it's understandable that they vote for Republicans. I probably would, too, if I was a gun person. So, you know, she goes, she, she answers me and she goes, are you kidding? I hate guns. Okay, so we'll check that one off the wow. list. So, so I'm like, okay, are you religious? You know, because the fact of the matter is that a lot of deeply religious people see the Republicans as the party of God mm -hmm. and therefore will not vote for Democrats under any circumstances, which again, I understand that mentality. And she, but I know this person and she responds to me as I thought she would respond, which is, you've known me for years. You know, I absolutely hate religion. So, no, I, I'm not religious. Okay, so let's check that off the list, right? So, are you pro-life? Um, that was the next question. Because the fact of the matter is that of all the political issues in America, this one is really the one where there's very little middle ground for a lot of people. For sure. The Democratic Party is the party of choice. They have be, been for decades now. There is practically no room anymore for those who used to be called pro-life Democrats. They don't even exist anymore. They've been pr pretty much kicked out of the party. Yeah. It is one of the Dems' most important political issues. And so if you are an ardent pro-lifer, 
and you firmly believe that life begins at conception, I would fully expect and understand your disdain for Mm -hmm. Democrats Mm -hmm. and the fact that you would never vote for one. I get that. I wouldn't even argue about that with you. So lo and behold, of course, this particular friend I was talking to is uh, pro-choice. So let's cross that one off the list, right? So I I went down the list of all the other sort of hot-button conservative Republican issues with her. You know, are you a free market capitalist? Do you adhere to sort of the libertarian mantra of taxation is theft? You know, Mm -hmm. the the libertarians have these T-shirts that say taxation is theft. And you have people like like, uh, Ted Cruz. Don't tell me to put my seatbelt on. Exactly. But you have uh, Ted Cruz is not technically a libertarian, but he he is so far right. And he one of his main policy agenda items when he was running for president was the abolishment of the IRS. He talked a lot about that. He wants to abolish the IRS. I mean, because fundamentally, the further right you are, the more you hate paying taxes and the more you think taxation is a scam. Right. Do you think the private sector should control the means of production rather than the government. Do you believe in limited government? Are you generally anti-union? You know, all of the answers that she gave to these questions were either no or some version of, I don't know enough about that to have an opinion. Wow. So I finally sort of realized that she wasn't a Republican. In fact, she was a liberal that just doesn't like Democrats. And so I just came out and said that. I was like, I hate to tell you, honey, but uh, you just don't like Democrats. Isn't that true? I hope and you after didn't a few minutes, <laughs> I did it. But <laughs> after a few minutes of sort of badgering her, um, which I am known to do every once in a while, I finally got her to admit, fine. I just don't like Democrats. I wow. don't know why. They just rub me the wrong way, okay? okay? Finally got her to admit it. Like, I just don't like them. I don't like them. I don't know what it is. I don't like them. And it sort of hit me that a lot of people, especially in our generation, Jay, yeah. uh, they don't really know the difference between Republicans and Democrats. There, there may be something about the way they grew up or their DNA that compels them to vote one way or, in the, or the other, but a lot of times they can't even put their finger on it. You know, sure. my wife would probably be an example of the opposite of this mm-hmm. particular friend. She's from a family that has always voted Democrat. She's lived in three states in her life, New York, Massachusetts, and California, which uh, again, a lot of it has to do with your surroundings, who you're surrounded by the people you surround yourself with. I think she simply has a view of Republican politicians as sort of money-grubbing, chauvinist, racist bad guys, and Democrats as the opposite. And I think a lot of people fall into that category. When when we got this remark from liberal tear drinker, from from here on being referred to as LTD, yeah, Mm -hmm. LTD, uh, I think we could break it down. You know, I thought that it would be good to break it down a little bit and use it as sort of a springboard or jumping off point to start a conversation for you all about the very, very basic elements of both Republican and Democratic thought. I want to put a caveat in here. Realize, of course, all our listeners out there, that both parties shift and change and go through cycles and different phases, yeah. right? I mean, you may have heard Fred Zeidman on our pod a, few, a couple of weeks ago. We had an interview with him, and he was saying that the Republican Party of today, for instance, is not the party that it was when 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 he joined when he was yeah. young, right? You know, That's Democrats true. as yeah, Democrats as we touched upon last week, they used to be the party of slavery. So, you know, obviously the ideals of each party and the constituency that they sort of pander to changes over time. But I do believe that the very, very basic framework of what made Republicans Republicans and Democrats Democrats is still somewhat intact. And in Mm -hmm. this episode, we want to go through a little of that and do it in a manner that will hopefully leave you questioning above all else what you, the listener, think the role of government should be. 
And you know, things have things have changed. So again, I want to say these are very, very basic, fundamental things. We're not going to get too deep into the weeds. We're just going to give you some basics. Yeah, you know, the sort of cl- classical definitions, I would say, the sort of classical definitions of sort of the right and the left. And mm-hmm. you know, without putting all of the sort of modern day caveats and things that 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 come with that on top of it. Exactly. Precisely. Couldn't have said that better. So let's jump into it. It's the topic of the day. So the viewpoint that LTD expressed in his comment is very much the foundational element behind American conservatism and republicanism. Natural rights pre-exist government and are endowed by our creator. Now, let's all put our thinking caps on. Let's Mine's break on. this down a little bit. Okay, I put it so on I'm, for the pot. Okay. Natural rights. What are natural rights, Jay? Natural rights are rights that come from God. I've been waiting for you to ask me this question for a long time. Did I nail it? And you, you nailed it. Ding, 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 ding. You know, I expected you to nail it because I know that you think that way. Now, I am not personally a person of faith. Mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily believe in God-given rights, but I do believe in inalienable human rights. Okay. Let's call them, for the sake of argument, I like to call them evolutionary rights. Okay, so in other words, they don't necessarily come from God, but we're born with them anyway. I am completely agnostic as to where they come from. I just don't know, and I believe that we have them. Okay, I think that that when the word inalienable uh, was mm-hmm. written, um, I did some research into this, and it seems as though the dividing line is between uh, the things that make us human and not animal. Does that track? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I get that. Because there's a difference. You know, being treated as an animal and being treated as, as a human being, there are rights that differ between the two. PETA may have something to, to say about that, but that is, I believe, the, <laughs> the, the design behind the Declaration of Independence in our Constitution. Absolutely. And we will get to that. You know, for, for me, I... I think I said this in the the first couple episodes, I am completely agnostic as to faith. I preach the gospel of I don't know. So um, I have the utmost respect for people of faith, but because I don't know, it does it doesn't impact my life either way. Yeah. But just even even if you're an atheist, even if you completely don't believe in God, you still can believe in inalienable rights, human mm-hmm. rights. I mean, you'll hear people say that all the time. So. And the next part, pre-existing government. What does that mean? Well, that's sort of a nice way of saying that the government doesn't provide those rights to us. Our creator does, whoever mm-hmm. creates us. Those rights come from him or her, okay? They existed before government was ever a thing, and they were laid out in the Bible of which the Judeo-Christian ethics sprung. That's absolutely right. The basis for our, our founding documents. Right, exactly. So... What are some of these natural creator-given rights, if you will? Well, freedom of expression, freedom of thought, freedom from tyranny, Mm -hmm. a right to defend oneself either physically or legally. These are all rights that we're born into and that are enumerated in our Constitution by our very, very brilliant founders. To put it very simply, okay, now this is the simple sort of crux of this episode, okay? Basic Republican thought centers around the idea that the government was created to protect these natural rights that are enumerated in the Constitution and to do virtually nothing else. Mm-hmm. Government merely exists as a tool to protect these rights. Am I spot on there, Jay? Spot on, my friend Riz. So that is what the, so let's let's just 
reiterate that again. What Republicans believe is that the government is just meant to protect those rights that those God-given or creator-given or whatever you want to call them, the rights that we are all born into, the government just exists as a tool to make sure those are protected. Now, Democrats, on the other hand, don't necessarily disagree with this philosophy, but do believe the government can provide more than just the protection of natural rights, hence expansive government. And and this is where I take issue with this comment from LTD that we received about Obama. He was talking about Obama and why mm-hmm. he thought Obama was a bad president. I don't believe that he has an that Obama has an issue with natural rights and the fact that they pre-exist government. I just think he also believes that government has the ability to make our lives better as well, which is a point of contention for some serious conservatives and we'll get to that. So first off, Jay, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that this is why Republican voters tend to be more religious than Democrats? And do you think that being a Republican requires one to have a certain amount of faith in the idea that our rights are provided by God and not by government? I don't think it's necessarily restrictive in that way. I don't think you need to have faith in order to be a Republican. I think mm-hmm. I do think you need to understand that those rights are granted by our creator. I think you made a really great distinction there that those rights are given to us by a higher entity than, our, than ourselves. And you can call that entity God, or you can call that entity whatever you feel that that entity is. But I right. do think that this is where the Judeo-Christian ethic comes into play. Classical okay. Judeo-Christian or biblical morality, it stands juxtaposed with subjective morality. Like the, what we're seeing today about my truth, which could right. lead to a lack of personal responsibility and ultimately could you know, point the way towards socialism. The inalienable rights that are endowed by our creator, it's direct reference to biblical virtue. So it does track that the majority of the Republican Party would be of the faith-based community. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, they say it's the, you know, leftists like to say it's the party of God and guns, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, taking the guns out, the God part does really make a lot of sense because people who are people of faith tend to believe that all of their rights came from their creator, came from God, and they don't care about what the government it has to say about that. That's their faith, right? Correct. Yeah, and it's you, you can't argue with it. And, you know, we'll get into this later, but the way that the Constitution and especially the Declaration of Independence were written was to separate that out, not necessarily so that there aren't conflicts, but to really hammer that home, that those mm-hmm. rights are given by God and they should not be interrupted by government in any way, shape, or form. Got it. Right. Absolutely. So let's talk about how the Constitution of the United States enshrined the protection of natural rights. Now, first, you have the Declaration of Independence. You know, what's the famous part of that document? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So again, that's basically a fancy way of saying you are, we are all born free with a right to liberty, to life, and to pursue anything we want to, to pursue. And those are endowed by our creator, by God. You know, these guys were religious men, so they did think it was by God. Yeah, you know, there's, there's an interesting history to this. There's a okay. similarity of this passage that shows up in the Virginia Declaration. Okay. Um, and, and, and Thomas Jefferson's version, who was obviously the main contributor to this document, mm-hmm. it's very apparent. And the Virginia Declaration defines inherent rights as those all men cannot divest their posterity. The key words here being inherent and cannot. 
the right. rights that Jefferson calls both inherent and, in, and inalienable are those that we're unable to get rid of for the simple reason that they are part of us and they define what we are as human beings. I think it's right. an, an interesting um, you know, a piece of information, how, how similar these were to the Virginia Declaration. Excellent. Yeah, really good stuff. You know, let's talk a little bit to keep this moving. Let's talk a little bit about the Constitution um, yeah. and, and the amendments. You know, First Amendment, freedom of religion, freedom of speech and of the press, which I love. I love the freedom of the press. I'll get to that in a second. Freedom of as, the as people, annoying as it is, as annoying as it is. Yeah. Freedom of the people to peaceably assemble, otherwise known as protest. Mm-hmm. All of these are God given inalienable rights. Wouldn't you say that, Jay? I would absolutely say that. Yes. Now, especially, I love the freedom of the press. I think it's, you know, we've lived with it for so long that we take it for granted, but there were very few countries, and even to this day, there are a lot of countries that don't have freedom of the press. Uh, The freedom of journalists to say what they want without fear of retaliation from the government is one of, if not the most important part of a democracy. And that's why Donald Trump has taken so much heat for attacking the press the way he does, Um, even if he doesn't like their reporting. The understanding that, and, and he's even, and maybe it's tongue in cheek with him, who the hell knows, but he's even suggested that they should be sued or they should, it should not be allowed. But the bottom line here is that any serious person, especially any serious conservative, understands that freedom of the press is incredibly important to our democracy. Yeah. And if you want, if you want to look at the reverse of that, take, you know, do some uh, digging into what goes on, on in China, what goes right. on in Russia. When you North talk Korea. about when yeah North Korea, when you go against um, the person in power as a, a member of the press, you will you know you you usually disappear. I mean, right? It well, exist. N- not just that, but you know, in in North Korea, for instance, and in Russia, the only media they have are state run media. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, so the 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 government is controlling uh, all of the information. You cannot have a free democracy if you have a blogger who has an elevated voice, you yeah. got to be scared for your life. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. What, what kind of society is that to live in? You know? It's something that we don't have to deal with here and that we should all thankful. be very happy about, right? We should all yeah. be very thankful for that. Uh, Second Amendment, the right to bear arms for one's own protection or the protection of their family. Again, a God-given inalienable right. A lot of people on the left don't like the Second Amendment, but it is a fundamental part of democracy. I've had this argument with very smart liberals, Uh, the, the ability to protect yourself. Now, the right has taken the Second Amendment and has, you know, the far right has claimed that it is unlimited. Uh, I, as someone, uh, you know, on the center left, do believe in gun regulation. I don't believe yeah. that this comes that we always have this argument of did the founders, were they able to anticipate the kind of weaponry we would have in this day and age? You know, remember when they wrote this, they were literally dealing with muskets that took, you know, uh, four minutes to load one bullet into it. Yeah. So could they have anticipated this? Would they have written that if they could? That's up for debate. But what isn't up for debate, in my opinion, is the right for all citizens to be able to defend themselves and their family. Yeah. As long as there is human nature out there and there's criminality, nobody is going to tell me that I can't defend my family. So Second Amendment, very, very important to a democracy. Amen. Yep. Fourth Amendment, uh, protection against unwarranted search and seizure. Again, another God-given inalienable right. All right. No one could come into your home without a warrant and just start taking and looking around, right? Yeah, the, okay. idea, the idea of property plays into this. Uh, you property know, does capitalistic uh, mm-hmm. ideal. Yep, exactly. And, you know, just the idea that... Um, 
a God-given right is your freedom to have ownership over your possessions. Nobody, right. uh, the government doesn't own them. They can't come in and take them without just cause. So the, the, the basic, we're just going to go over a few, but the basic foundation of republicanism or conservatism is that the government was created to protect all of these God-given rights. The principles undergirding the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are as follows, okay? Number one, Natural rights pre-exist in government. They existed before government was ever formed. Number two, a limited government that exists only to protect those rights. You hear conservatives all the time talk about limited government. That's because they believe the government should only be protecting those rights and shouldn't be doing anything else. Limited government. And number three, checks and balances to prevent government from overstepping boundaries. I mean, it completely tracks, and I think it's mm -hmm. great. I think it's important to note that these were the founding document documents to our country. So when you talk about the GOP, the grand old party, mm -hmm. and the ideals with which they speak, um, and sometimes they don't do it so well, but spoke. they speak. Spoke. They, they spoke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Past tense. Past tense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but even currently, that, that, that the rhetoric, you know, they claim that these are the founding ideals of this country. There's backing to that, and it's in these documents, um, right. and I think it's an important uh, note. Absolutely. Now, you know, why is, so you might ask yourself why law enforcement is a public service and why they take an oath to the Constitution, because all law enforcement is actually tasked with is protecting our civil rights. That's what they're supposed to do. And yes, we could have, we, we already had episodes about this, and we could have many more about when they overstep their constitutional authority. However, right. the task of law enforcement in general is to protect our civil rights, and therefore, they are a public service. They are on the government dole. We do all pay for them, and they do take an oath to the Constitution. They don't take an oath to anything else. They take an oath to protect our civil liberties. You might also say, you know, uh, what about national health care? I believe that Republicans, at least old school conservatives, traditional conservatives, believe that you have the right to be as healthy or unhealthy as you want to be, but you don't have the right to other people's labor. And that's what you're saying when you say healthcare is a right. You hear Bernie Sanders, healthcare is a human right that everyone should be able to have in the richest country in the world. Okay, what you're saying when you say healthcare is a right is you're saying that the people who devote their lives to the fields of medicine and go through sometimes decades of schooling that they just owe you their labor because healthcare is a right. Mm -hmm. It's not a right. We could also make the argument of is public education a right? You know, Republicans have had many problems with public education over the years. It's not in the Constitution. There is nothing right. in the Constitution that says you're uh, you have a right to an education. You can get one if you want, but is mm -hmm. it a human right? Probably not, right, Jay? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I think about both of these things as you've addressed them, I thought really aptly. And that is, it's, they're not rights, they are goods. Um, and as far yeah. as education is concerned, it is a good. And it's the yeah. answer to a lot of the inequities we've discussed in previous episodes. You know, the answer in the black community of, of the, the, the answer to poverty, the answer to crime, all of the answers to these things is education. So it is not a right, right. but it is a good. And I agree right. uh, that healthcare is the same way. And, and that would explain why in traditional American conservative thought, they don't necessarily include healthcare or public education mm -hmm. as what the founders set out the government to protect via the Constitution. Am I correct? Yeah. That's correct. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Absolutely. Now, on the other hand, moving on here, Democrats believe that the government should do more. 
okay? They've believed this since the early 1900s. Woodrow Wilson made a very big pitch for this, okay? Something, so let's talk about something that is uniquely Democrat, Democratic, big D. And when I say big D, I am making a distinction between the word democratic as in a democratic system and the democratic party, big D, Democrat. And that that unique Democrat idea, it, a perfect example of that would be something like social security. And I would love right now if my good buddy Jay, whose birthday it happens to be, had prepared one of his good old fashioned buzzed histories about the history of Social Security so we could inject it into this episode right now and you guys could learn about it. Jay, you got something? It's funny you mentioned that, Riz. I got one right here. Let me take you back to the 1930s. Not a particular wonderful time as the Great Depression swept the nation, dropping poverty rates among senior citizens to over 50%. After a national debate centered around a monthly stipend for the elderly in 1932, set into motion by Dudley J. LeBlanc's failed campaign for governor of Louisiana, the idea was popularized by Francis Townsend in 1933 and branded the Townsend Act. The initial opposition worried that it would reduce the labor force. However, this was countered by the idea that retiring older workers would free up employment for young men, which was an issue during the Depression. Naturally, I couldn't give a buzzed history on this topic without the stupendous quote from the Senate Finance Committee's debate of this issue. When one senator asked the Secretary of Labor, Francis Perkins, quote, isn't this socialism, And quote, to which Secretary Perkins replied, no, to which the senator continued, quote, isn't this a teeny weeny bit of socialism? Now, this wasn't the first instance of a social security payment. Starting in 1862, hundreds of thousands of veterans disabled in the Civil War and their widows and orphans could apply for a government pension for veterans. In 1890, the law was amended to include any disabled Civil War veteran, regardless of how the disability occurred. In 1906, the law was amended again to include old age as a criterion. Company pension plans arrived in 1882 when the Alford Dolge Company created a pension fund for its employees. A handful of companies followed suit, but most of them went out of business before the pensions could be distributed. Back to the Great Depression, which left millions unemployed and hit the elderly incredibly hard, pushing many states to pass legislation to protect their older citizens. Most elder assistance programs of the time were a massive failure. They were underfunded, poorly run, and in some cases flat out ignored by officials. Those seniors who received assistance got only about 65 cents a day. In fact, up until this point, most social assistance plans in America were dependent on the government charities and private citizens doling out money to people in need. Enter FDR, who proposed a program in which people contributed to their own future economic security by contributing a portion of their work income through payroll tax deductions. Essentially, the current working generation would pay into the program and finance the retired generation's monthly allowance. In June of 1934, President Roosevelt created the Committee on Economic Security and handed them the task of creating an economic security bill. The CES landed on the Social Security Act, which included the following an old age pension program, unemployment insurance funded by employers, health insurance for people in financial distress, financial assistance for widows and children, financial assistance for disabled individuals. Congress eventually passed the Social Security Act and on August 14, 1935, FDR signed it into law. Directly after, FDR established a three-person board to administer the program. And by November 1936, registration for the program began excluding self-employed professionals, field hands, and domestic workers. To become eligible, workers completed an application at their local post office and received a national identity card with a unique nine-digit ID number, what we know today as a social security card. Within eight days of rollout, over one million workers had social security numbers and four months later, almost 26 million had enrolled. Numerous amendments have been passed to the original act. For example, a lump sum payment was changed to monthly payouts beginning January 1st, 1940, 
Another amendment extended eligibility to dependents and survivors of retired workers. And in the 1950s, amendments created extended eligibility to domestic and farm workers, non-farm self-employed professionals, and some federal employees. In 1960, President Eisenhower approved legislation to allow Social Security benefits for disabled workers and their dependents. The Social Security Amendments of 1965 provided insurance to Social Security beneficiaries age 65 and older. Dubbed Medicare, the program also offered people 65 and older the chance to purchase supplemental medical insurance. In 1972, President Nixon, in what is considered a very non-Republican move, signed legislation to provide an automatic cost of living allowance each year to offset the cost of inflation. When the 1980s came around, it was another Republican's turn to attempt to save Social Security. President Ronald Reagan created a commission to examine how to keep Social Security in the black, and in 1983, he signed legislation that gradually increased the retirement age to 67, taxed Social Security benefits, and provided Social Security benefits to federal workers. And again, in 2001, President George W. Bush appointed another commission in an attempt to reform Social Security. While no big changes were ultimately made, the Bush administration extended disability benefits and food stamps to qualified immigrants and their children, eliminated wage credits for the military, and expanded Medicare prescription drug coverage. And yet another counterpartisan move, this time from the other side of the aisle. President Obama's administration temporarily reduced the Social Security tax rate from 6.2 to 4.2% in 2011 and 2012, easing financial strain on American workers, but doing very little to de-risk the future of Social Security. Attempts to keep Social Security solvent have succeeded so far, but the program faces a great many hurdles, just like, um, you know, our president. The retirement age required to receive full benefits continues to increase, and many beneficiaries are claiming benefits later in life, often waiting until 70 or later. It is often called, quote, the third rail of American politics, and for good reason, as Toby says in the TV show The West Wing, my favorite show of all time, in a conversation between him and President Bartlett, is you can't save Social Security without cutting benefits or raising taxes. And this is the largest meeting in Washington where anyone's ever admitted it. This has been Buzzed History. Buzz History. Excellent job, Jay. Really, really like that. So would you say that Social Security is a uniquely Democratic Big D idea? Absolutely. I think Absolutely. that, that is, it, is a, it is a reach of the government to do something extra for the people. Right. And, you know, a lot of people who collect Social Security, my father is one of them, really like it. You know? Yep. Um, it has been really beneficial. But, you know, you will hear a lot of Republicans, especially the wonkier types, like the guys like Paul Ryan, who get kicked out of the party really fast for not being, uh, you know, for being too wonky on this kind of stuff, uh, you know, talk about how we need reform, which to them really means eliminating eventually Social Security, because Republicans deep down, especially ideological ones, don't like the idea of Social Security. They never thought it was a good idea. They hated it when FDR you know, implemented it. They just don't like it. They believe it was an, it was an overreach. But like, you know, right. I did mention there there are a number of Republicans who came to the table and helped move this forward. Exactly. And I would say because there is a lot of political pressure and we're going to get to this in a, in a couple minutes here. But once you give once the government gives you something and your citizens get used to it, it is very hard and very uh, hard politically to take that away. So you've seen President Trump talk about protecting Social Security. These are not traditional Republican ideals. Republicans yeah. used to never talk about that. But because it is so popular, even ap- among the Republican base now and people who have worked their whole lives and are now 65 years old, which is, you know, uh, Donald Trump's base, a lot of his, you know, he has a lot sure. of uh, elderly people in his base. Unbeknownst they to don't, him. 
Right. <laughs> they don't want to hear that the government's going to take away their money now. Right. So it's a very, very hard thing. And we're going to get to that in a famous Ronald Reagan quote in a minute about that very thing. Uh, what I want to do first is uh, contrast a little bit uh, the differences between the European style of government and American, because we hear a lot of people on the left, especially younger people, people who have been to Europe, people who have friends in Europe, talk about how much better things are in Europe. You know, uh, you have Michael Moore, uh, the filmmaker, he has made pretty much a career over, you know, going to Europe and showing us everything that we don't have that they yeah. have there, right? And how much better their life is. So what European governments have done is they've provided their citizenry with incredible social safety nets. The government, they're capitalist societies, but the government provides these things to them. Uh, what are the, po the positives of this kind of system? Well, if you sustain an injury, you're not going to go broke trying to pay for it. If you have a child, you're not going to have to decide between quitting your job and raising your children. A lot of these countries have government-sponsored child care. Uh, a lot of these countries provide free college education to their citizens. Most of these countries have less crime, homelessness, depression, drug abuse, broken homes, domestic abuse, gun violence, etc. Sounds good, doesn't it? You might want to up and move to Europe. But wait. There's some bad. Here's the bad. Citizens pay an exorbitant amount of taxes. I mean, ridiculous compared to what we pay. Very few people acquire wealth in Europe or in the Scandinavian countries, you know, sometimes referred to as the, quote, American dream. And of course, the government has a lot more power over your lives. Uh, but this also apparently leads to objectively higher levels of happiness in these countries. We have seen study after study that people in Denmark, in, uh, you know, all those Scandinavian countries are, are, are you know, they rank happier than we I are. Love a, now, I love a happiness poll. My yeah, happiness polls are great. You know, who knows how they're actually conducting yeah, this. Exactly. But I actually have a little personal experience here because uh, my sister-in-law lived in Denmark for many years. Right. And I remember of all the things she said that sort of got to me, we were, she had come back for Christmas and we were hanging out talking about it. And she said, the thing that's the most surprising to her is how much the Danes love their government. Like mm -hmm. she'll be out with some of her coworkers and they talk about their government as if it's a, a friend. Like, like over a beer? It, yeah, like we love our government. Like they, they, they're almost like, uh, you know, your your family, and and that is a very bizarre thing to Americans because right or left in America, none none of us love our government. We all like there's we we might love certain members, certain Congress people or something. We might think someone so is cute, but ultimately, very few Americans are like, oh, our government, they're the best because the American government wasn't designed that way. You're not supposed to love it. They're not supposed Correct. to be. You're not supposed to go to your government for for guidance or for comfort. That's not what the government was made for. So, yeah. Yeah, but with that said, I am a Democrat, uh, you know, or at least a moderate Democrat, or at least I was. And I do understand the contrast between those European styles. And I do think, uh, you know, the European styles of government and the American government. And I do think there is something to be said for the government having a little more compassion and being mm -hmm. able to provide some things that take the burden off and maybe give each of us a better life, right? But that comes with consequences. It comes with financial yeah. consequences. It comes with consequences for the, quote, American dream, right? Now, I wanted to also bring up Ben Shapiro again. <laughs> a couple of my friends have... Um, have said to me, like, why do you guys play Ben Shapiro? He's the guy's such a doofus, right? I wanted to explain 
you know, even with like that, na- that fast, nasally, uh, savant-like voice that he has. I love Ben Shapiro. I don't I, understand I love people that don't like him. He's great. But I'll, t- I'll tell you why I like him. Because there's okay. a whole slew of of conservative commentators out there. You sort of, at the very bottom of the rung, you have sort of the Sean Hannity's, which are like, oh, the left is stupid. I just like Donald Trump. You know, it, yeah. it, you know there's no intellectual. It's just, it's just owning the libs, right? It's then you brutes. have like the next, yeah. You have the next level, which is like the Tucker Carlson's who are a little bit smarter. Um, they're actually much smarter. They're more ideological, but they're still not bringing up constitutional stuff. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they dumb it down still. Then you have, you know, the Tommy Larens and, you know, people like that who are just basically blonde mouthpieces to just make the Republicans feel like they have that sect of, uh, of the voting voting base. But ultimately, Shapiro, what I love about Shapiro is that he is the only conservative commentator that I've heard that always invokes the constitution and has yeah. he has such an incredible brain that he can take any issue and he could be divisive for sure but he could take any issue and bring it back to the constitutionality of the issue and so if you're one of those people like me that likes to learn about this stuff and really yeah. wants to understand the philosophical differences he's the guy to listen to i think a lot of people forget that our our country is founded on the constitution which is a set of laws. And Mm -hmm. in order to understand laws, they need to be translated by a lawyer, by a court. And those things are inherently necessary to understand if you're going to have a political conversation. And too many people leave out the uh, importance of the legal arguments and bringing things back to the Constitution, to the legalities of our system of governance. And, and I, that's what Ben does so well. He really he brings our attention back to the Constitution, back to the legal arguments, back to the law, which is where our country was founded on. Right. Right. Yeah. Very, very true. With that said, I've sort of I listened to Shapiro enough where after I read LTD's comment, I was like, this guy listens to Shapiro because he pretty much nicked. Couldn't exactly, tell by the name. He, yeah. Yeah, he pretty well, not just that. He pretty much nicked exactly what uh, what Shapiro had said after Obama's speech at the DNC, which we already know. If you listened to a couple episodes ago, we had a whole debate with Ben Shapiro over Obama. He does not like Obama. He's not an Obama fan. After Obama's speech at the DNC, Shapiro had this to say. What Shapiro is talking about here is Obama and the idea that he doesn't like that rights come from God. You know, that's basically what Shapiro is talking about. So let's hear what he has to say. And just like every progressive since Woodrow Wilson, he dislikes that. He doesn't believe there are natural rights that pre-exist government. He believes that rights come from government, just like entitlements come from government. Barack Obama does not believe that a limited government ought to protect rights. He believes that an unlimited government ought to give you things. Barack Obama does not believe in checks and balances. He believes in whatever gets the job done. Right? That's why you got pen and a phone Obama. That's why you got DACA Obama. That's why you got war in Libya without congressional authorization Obama. And yet, the man has the temerity to get, and he's been doing this throughout his career, so this was nothing new. He has the temerity to get up there and pretend that he's speaking in the name of documents that he absolutely abhors because he thinks that they are limitations on the ability of government to bring us all together. Okay. So, you know, obviously I have, I I take objection with, with, with some of the things he says there, but I understand Mm -hmm. at least why he is saying that. And again, he's using a very constitutional basis, which is probably in my, is my hunch. That's what liberal tear drinker heard. And then was, uh, was was sprung into action to to write that comment. If I'm wrong, then please let me know that. I want to say one more thing before we move on. Um, a lot of you on the left might be saying, you know, why are Republicans such 
when it comes to programs that may actually help people and make lives better. We just went over all those European things. I want to bring up a quote from Ronald Reagan and my good buddy Jay on his birthday. It's a perfect time to bring up Ronald Reagan because Justin is a huge fan of Reagan, isn't he? Big fan. I love Reagan. He's yeah, he loves Reagan. He's, he, I mean, he goes to the Reagan library. He has, he has Reagan, you know, merch in his house. I certainly do. I got hats. I got sweatshirts. I'm bringing you, Riz. You, you are. You are. Reagan, when the pandemic's the over, we're going. That's yeah. right. So Reagan has a famous quote, and it goes like this. No government ever voluntarily reduces itself in size. Government programs, once launched, never disappear. Actually, a government bureau is the nearest thing to eternal life we'll ever see on this earth. So what Reagan is saying there, and that's one of his famous quotes, because Reagan was very much about limited government. The idea that once you give people these programs, you never can take them away. You can never go back. They, are, they have eternal life, to use his words. And I think in, in contrast to how you bring in the European situation and style of government, I think it's important. Because what you're saying here is that when you bring these, these programs into play, they don't go away easily, if at all. And, and, you know, in our founding documents, it's the pursuit of happiness. It's not the guarantee of happiness. Yep. That's a distinction to make here. That's a and huge there distinction. May be, there may be a, a greater swath of people that are happier, but the opportunities are less. And not everyone deserves a participation trophy just for being in the game. Um, and I'll give you one quote as an example. Uh, mm-hmm. Xander Mellish, who's a, a Danish business consultant and author of a, a book called How to Work in Denmark, he, he's quoted as saying, we pay for this being their, being their system of government every single day, and we do it in more than one way. Uh, Nord, and and he, what he means by that is that Nordic countries pay some of the highest taxes in the world. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. In Denmark, there is a 25% sales tax and a 150% tax on cars. And those yeah. are the prices that they pay for these government programs. So, yeah. you know, imagine having that here and having that for the rest of your foreseeable future. Somebody's always got to pay for it, right, Jay? Yeah, you know, and, right. and to, sum, to sum this up and to sort of use that Reagan quote and what you just said as, as, as the crux of this whole thing, I think what people like Reagan and, and traditional sort of classic conservatives like we've been talking about believe ultimately is that if we continue down the road of giving people government programs that cost a ton of money and that are impossible to ever get rid of, we may end up with a more stable citizenry like they have in Denmark and these Scandinavian mm-hmm. countries, but we also eliminate the chance of having Rockefellers and Bill Gateses and Jeff yeah. Bezos and all these people who have made, who have not just acquired wealth, but have changed our lives for the better and have also become synonymous with American innovation. Yeah. Um, that, that is the big thing. When you look around the world and see what is the country that has historically innovated the most, it is America and it is directly linked to our constitution and our founding values. Couldn't be more right. I, I think that when people right now, there's such a stigma on those names that you just mentioned. And what I, I, I would implore people to stop and recognize aren't the names themselves or the people themselves. It, it, take a look around you at this exact moment. Stop what you're doing as you're listening to this podcast. Look around you because I guarantee you one of those names that Rob just mentioned has had something to do with some kind of technological advancement that mm-hmm. is making your life better and easier that you are in the vicinity of at this moment in time. Absolutely. We're using it right now as we record this pod. That's right. Thank you, Bill. 
<laughs> so uh, we're gonna we're gonna go to a slightly different topic now, uh, very quickly, and then we're gonna bring this back at the end. I want to just go through a little bit about the DNC, just to give you a little bit uh, of a casual casual sort of listen here. Um, the DNC, of course, is the Democratic National Convention. I want to break down a little bit of the speeches and uh, get Jay's opinion. I'm gonna give you my opinion on the whole thing. Now we are currently in the middle as we're taping this. The RNC, the Republican National Convention, is oh, on. Aren't we ever? We're, we're not going to talk about that today. We're probably gonna bring that back for next week's episode. I just want to t- talk about the DNC uh, for this episode. Less so, yelling. Yeah. So DNC. what did you think, Jay? I thought it was pretty measured. It was. I mean, the whole thing is weird to take in, and the RNC looks. Uh, it's shocking for me to say this. It looks a little bit no- more normalized now because we're we're not used to seeing this sort of um, packaged in, yeah. in the way that it is. We're used to an audience. We're used to live. We're used to it yeah. feeling very different. Um, and I thought that the the DNC felt very forced. It felt mm-hmm. very packaged generally. The celebrity felt like a involvement. Yeah, it felt like a telethon. Thank you. But I, was I don't expecting think a number at the, at the bottom. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, completely. And that's why I say yeah. it. And, and I think that the RNC gets to benefit from that because they weren't first right that's how it came off um and, and they sort of couldn't help it yeah it, it did come off as a little bit telethon there were some cheesy moments there were some really great moments uh mm-hmm. you know uh, my my takeaway is basically the same takeaway i had with kamala harris in general which is sort of yeah. like eh, okay cool. fine yeah except yeah. for except except for obama i thought obama yeah. was spectacular again yeah, like I'm... don't agree with the guy's policies but oh mm-hmm. my gosh even my wife, who is, you know, yeah. she's on the right. She's at the as end conservative of his speech, as it comes. Yeah, yeah. At, at the end of his speech, she was like, gosh, why can't Trump just speak like that? She's, she's going to kill you for mentioning that on the air, a, dude. Absolutely, but it's true, and he's an incredible speaker. You can't, yeah. there's no one you can put him in front of and no. say the, the man doesn't know how to orate. He is the greatest orator of our time, uh, even... Uh, the hardcore conservatives, I, I heard Dennis Prager, who's a very hardcore conservative commentator, mm-hmm. mentioning that he could be the greatest orator of the last yeah. hundred years. He has a way of doing that, whether you like him or not, or like his Absolutely. policies, whether or not you think, uh, I'm taking, say, take all the divisive things that you think about Obama out of it. Just yeah. him talking into a camera is extremely moving. Yes. Um, I will also say that Joe Biden's speech was the best speech of his entire career. Yes. It also... Totally he had to have been coached. Dest- it, who knows? I don't care. What I do care about is that it, it destroyed the narrative of the right that he's senile. And if you notice, and again, I don't want to talk too much about the RNC, but the RNC, it, you know, they were going with the whole, their whole pitch was that Joe Biden's senile. They haven't mentioned that once at the two no. nights I've watched the RNC. Now they've shifted to two talking points. Number one, he's going to be a tool of the radical left. Number two, in his 50-year career, he hasn't gotten anything done. Um, but they stopped talking about the senile thing because I think Joe Biden seemed very alert. I think he seemed passionate. He, he seemed, seemed emo- a- angry. You know, yeah, it was, I, I think uh, he seemed authentic because he yeah. is angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I thought but it was, it was the good. first I, time you the first time you really saw that come through. Definitely, it, since he's run for sure. Yeah. He, yeah, he yeah. it was the it was the most he felt like a competent, intelligent, non senile man. For lack it was of a it better was term. it was the best Joe Biden. I we we absolutely agree on that. It was the best absolutely. version of Joe Biden that has been seen in this campaign. Although I think. I will say with that, because, you know, I'm always about critiquing every avenue I can find here. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't all great for me. The, they, they missed one huge, 
huge opportunity, in my opinion. And what that opportunity was, was to call out the violent protesters, the looters, the rioters, not one person in the Democratic Party, of all those people who talked over, what, three nights? Not one person mentioned it. And I don't understand what the hell they're thinking about this. I mean, I I guess if I had to hypothesize, I would say that maybe they're thinking what I have been thinking, which is that this is such a small group of people that if we talk about it, we make it bigger than it is. And in fact, there is a Washington Post article that was just yesterday, and I'll post this on our blog, that showed a group of four guys that were at a protest in Cleveland, in Cincinnati, and some other city, mm-hmm. Akron maybe, um, yeah. all in the same day. And they had the picture ju- just to show you how small Ohio is. How small this group. These are, are not Democrats. They are anarchists. They are anarchi- yeah. anarchists who hate the country, who are, are, are not involved with the Democratic Party. And I think the you know there's a movement on the right right now if you watch the rnc to paint all these people as democrats you know that the 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 republicans have been doing this thing now where they're sort of conflating criminals the common common thugs with democrats so everyone's a democrat and basically anyone who does something bad is a democrat okay these people are not democrats they're okay and they're idiots and they're anarchists and i don't understand why no one could do that i i really think the democrats need a tough guy or a tough girl for that. I get one of these military I think that's chicks. Great. Yeah, I love right. it. They they need a guy like okay. They need an Israeli is what they need. Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I would never run for office as I've said before, but they would. I'll do the speech, okay? They need yeah. someone to get up there and talk about the right to peacefully assemble, to protest, American rights, how great that is, how terrible Donald Trump is for democracy, all of these things, and then also say, oh, and by the way, those people who are looting and rioting and destroying people's businesses and using violence against innocent people, get the out of my country. That's that's what I would say. I would love to hear somebody say that because I think they would win in a landslide. The last time that was said directly after the the George Floyd uh, murder, the local governors messaged this. Newsom messaged it, uh, messaged it. Uh, you know, uh, our mayor in L.A. messaged it uh, maybe a week after on a national it happened, scale. No, gone. And even yeah. even even on a local scale now, they don't do it anymore. Yeah, I don't understand what the hell they're thinking. I, I think they would win hands down. They could they could walk and chew gum at the same time. They could talk about Trump. They could talk about uh, Democratic ideals. And they could also say that this bullshit is not a democratic ideal and you're not an american if you're doing this and get the hell out you know i i I just i don't get it those two things can be you know true at once all right we don't have to go into it we don't have to waste more time Uh, but in summation um i do think the dnc was a how do i put this orange man bad seminar Sure. Which which is all it had to be. And a lot a lot of uh, right wing commentators were saying that all they had was Trump is bad. Trump is bad. Trump is bad because Trump is bad. And I don't think they have to say much more. They didn't talk much about policy. And I'm not necessarily going to sit here and say I think they should have. I think their message is what Obama said, which is that this guy is incompetent. He's he he's not going to get better. He can't get better. He can't learn. And so we have to get the hell we have to get rid of him. Yeah, I've, I've been saying this from the very beginning. If if the Democrats talk policy, 
it could be construed as not progressive enough or too yeah. progressive. So they right. shouldn't. All they right. need to be saying in order to win this is we will do better than the person in office currently and they need to stay away from policy because it's only going to hurt them. Right. I like the orange man bad thing. I think they should pound down orange man bad how they win. And, and not let anyone forget what happened in this pandemic. Because if, what I have been appalled with with watching the RNC is that the, the entire Republican Party is talking about this as past tense. The, yeah. the, the pandemic. They keep referring to when we had this pandemic. You know, it ain't over yet. It's it, it, a lot of people think it's just beginning. You know, Still we March haven't hit. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, we haven't hit winter yet. What the hell yeah. is going to happen when it's combined with flu season? Sure. My mm -hmm. kids still don't go to school. So don't tell me it's over. They want to make the pitch that it's over. And it's not. If Democrats keep doing the orange man bad thing and keep reminding people of what Trump did that, you know, how this thing could have been stopped when it when he had the chance and he spent it, he wasted that chance trolling the left. If they keep on that, I think they can win this election. Anyway, moving on. Last thing I want to do here is as I was watching the convention, I was really listening intently to the speeches and I wanted to to bring this back to what we've been talking about in this episode, the ideological differences between Republicans and Democrats. I wanted to find something that a Democratic politician said that I knew would make the classic conservative, the ideological conservative, sort of raise their eyebrow. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny, dude. Maybe I've been doing this too long, but I'm a little too in sync here. Yeah. <laughs> but as I'm watching it, Joe Biden said one thing, and I thought, there it is. That's the thing that they're going to, that, that, that one of the smart conservatives is going to say something about. And sure enough, on Shapiro's show the next day, there it's is. the only thing he brought up about the speech. So let me play you quickly what Joe Biden said. It's very, very quick. And then we'll play you Shapiro's reaction. Here is Biden at the DNC, just this one short clip. You know, my dad was an honorable, decent man. He got knocked down a few times pretty hard, but he always got back up. He worked hard, and he built a great middle-class life for our family. He used to say, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I sure in hell expect them to understand them. Okay, and the second I heard that, I said, okay, that's the one, the one line right there. And sure enough, Shapiro the next day, but your response wasn't, wait, he called him Joey? <laughs> no, the response wasn't, had nothing to do with the, with Joey. But it's funny, Joe Biden always uses Joey when he talks about his dad. So maybe that's really what his dad called. I All think right. it's charming. Anyway, this is what Shapiro had to say. There's one point in here where Joe Biden quoted his dad, and he does this a lot in his speeches where he says, my dad said to me, Joey, and then he says something we have no idea whether his dad actually said, but he says, Joey, I don't care if government solves my problems, but government should understand my problems. First of all, I don't think government needs to understand your problems unless government has a public policy to solve the problems. I don't look for caring or compassion from a government agency. Like if I'm looking for a shoulder to cry, I don't head on down to the DMV. This bizarre notion that is pushed constantly by Democrats that government is there to care about you is really weird. Why exactly would a faceless, nameless bureaucrat have never met care about me? I, I just, I don't understand why you would go seeking care and comfort from people who you've never met, whose literal job is to interpret statutes and then apply them. It's a very strange thing. Yeah. Now, 
I don't necessarily agree with everything he says there, but I like using this kind of response because Shapiro is really drawing a line in the sand here and illuminating one of the very core principle differences that exist between Republican thought and Democratic thought. Mm -hmm. Democrats do believe that government can provide compassion. Republicans generally don't, nor do they wish it to. That's what your family is for. That's what your community is for. Bureaucratic organizations cannot provide compassion. Your family can. This is probably why Republicans tend to talk a lot about family values. Am I wrong, Jay? No, you're right. And I brought it up in sort of our, in when I was answering the Jesus as a socialist question. A government cannot love. A government cannot show compassion. People can love. People can show compassion. So why are we asking for something that isn't possible from a, a, a as Shapiro said, a group of people that, you know, the conglomerate of is not possible for them to give. Right, right. Yeah, so hopefully we gave you something to think about here. I think we really laid out the very, very basic foundation of the differences between the two parties' ideology. So in closing, you have a homework assignment. Now, we're not going to ask you to write us or or, or, or turn this in. You know, we're not going to call your mom or anything. But your homework assignment is just to think to yourself, what do you believe the role of government should be? You know, because a lot of people might be listening to this podcast and might say, you know what, I agree with the general Republican slash conservative take on the role of government. The problem is I don't see that in today's Republican Party. That is perfectly fine to say. I mean, after all, Donald Trump is residing over and has made the, the deficit worse. That's supposed to be a Republican ideal. So we can very safely say that Republicans aren't necessarily meeting uh, their, uh, you know, the ideals that they were founded, that the party was founded on. If we get one thing out of this episode, it would be for all of you to sort of think about everything that we talked about here and and decide what you think. Maybe you've been to Europe. Maybe you see how people live. Maybe you say, you know what? It doesn't matter to me if we have innovators like Bezos and Rockefellers who, who are in this country. I'd rather live like the, like the Danes do, where everyone's sort of equal and we have this huge social safety net. We don't have to worry about much. You know, think about it. Think about it and uh, decide what kind of America you want to have and then vote accordingly uh, in your local elections and your state elections and, uh, of course, your national elections. Yeah, personally, I don't like eating reindeer meat, so that's really my stance. <laughs> There you go. There you go. That's all you needed to know. <laughs> so we're going to leave it there. Uh, give you something to think about. We hope you enjoyed this. This was sort of a, uh, a, a quick episode just talking about ideological stuff. you have anything else to say about it, Jeff? I got one more thing to say, Riz. Do it. For my birthday, go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on the air. Follow us on social media, at downthemiddlepodcast on Instagram, at downthemiddlepc on Twitter, and at downthemiddlepod on Facebook. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. Five freaking stars, people. Five stars no is not, less. not difficult. No less. Uh, you can visit me at, at Justin Siegel on all socials, and you can visit Riz at Rob underscore Lifer at uh, Instagram, Rob Lifer at Twitter, the best looking Rob Lifer on Facebook. Damn straight. And that is it. Nothing else to say. <laughs> visit our Discord. Mix it up with us. Let's talk politics. The link is in our socials. And buy some merch. Wow your friends by promoting moderate change incrementally. It'd be a great birthday gift for me. The link is in our bio. And that's all I got, guys. Thank you for tuning in. We love you so much. Thank you. Enjoy. Uh, one more question, Jay. I have one more yeah. question for you. Okay. Did, did we fulfill the, uh, the promise of brevity in a shorter episode? 
Yeah, no, I don't think so. I, I haven't edited this it. yet. Um, but what we just did was 40 minutes and we hit record like three times. So um, sorry to everyone. It's just, I don't think it's possible. You know, we get we tried. on a roll. We, this was the shortest you timed, outline. You timed yeah. this. You I took timed, the time yeah. out of your day, mm-hmm. out of teaching your children's school, to time <laughs> out how short our podcast was going to be. And it yeah. just doesn't work. It, you know what? We have a lot to say, and you're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to get over it. Get therapy. That's all I can say. You know, if you live in California, there's, there's legalized marijuana. Smoke, smoke up while you listen to this. Why not? It's legal. Uh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I'm for it. I, what am I, what am I yeah, saying here? It's, it's le- you're not breaking any laws, okay? Yeah. In fact, you're giving our government some more money for those government programs. Help them get the homeless off the streets. Let's go. It's true. It's true. Smoke up. All right. And that is the end uh, decide for yourself. Have a good day. Or night.